Please be seated. Good evening to you. There we go. It's Father's Day. All right. Oh, good evening to you. There we go. All right. I knew it was in you. It's priming the pump. Ecclesiastes chapter 5 tonight. Sunday night we go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, the Bible is always great, especially on the Sunday nights where we cover a little bit of ground in the Scriptures, or at least we always intend to, and you'll be able to listen to the Word and read along with your own eyes. And men are coming up the aisles with Bibles. In fact, it's too late now. They're already at the end of the aisles, so sorry about that. My announcement was too long, and, uh, but they had a Bible for you. And if you still wave, they'll come back and get you a Bible tonight. By the way, if you uh, read the Religious Digest in the Modesto B um, this weekend, it stated that uh, Dr. K.P. O'Hannon was going to be here this weekend, and we would be showing the Veil of Tears this evening. That's not happening. And if you came for that and you don't want to listen to a Bible study, you have 45 seconds to <laughs> leave the room, and we won't hold it against you. But do realize that this is just a couple of weeks away, and it'll be a great event that's happening. Uh, these were handed out this morning as, a, as people entered our, uh, the fellas, uh, into the sanctuary, and uh, if you don't have one of these, you can pick one up in the uh, fellowship hall after the service and find out what's going to be happening. We'll talk more about it next week. Well, here we come in uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and beginning in verse 10 and all the way through uh, chapter 6, Solomon returns to a subject that he had talked about earlier, and the subject that he returns to is the vanity of attempting to find uh, meaning and purpose in life through the accumulation of riches. He returns to the subject because that is probably the single greatest area that people are deceived into believing that if only I had enough money or a certain amount of money, then I would be satisfied with my life. My search for meaning and purpose would be over. It's interesting to realize concerning Jesus that he spoke about money more than heaven and hell all put together. It's not because money is more important than heaven and hell, but it is because we think about money, even as Christians, more than we do about heaven and we do about hell. And so Solomon just comes around realizing that this is a kind of a dominant issue for a lot of people, and so he's going to address it a second time. He's already told us, as we saw last week, that riches can never satisfy in verse 10 that riches are a, a, a great responsibility in a person's life, and they can bring a lot of complications uh, to life. In verse uh, 11, further in verse 12, that riches can mean more worry, and they can rob a person of sleep. And then he continues here in verse uh, 13, where we come tonight. I don't know. It's always fun, and it's always educational and interesting to be able to come into contact with people that normally we don't have contact with. And one of the groups of people that I have very limited contact with are the super rich. 
Maybe I'm in regular contact with them, but they keep it a secret from me because they know it would taint the relationship if I knew about it. But here is Solomon. Money like you can't even describe. Unbelievably, indescribably wealthy. And so to be able to come to somebody in, let's say, a uh, wood-paneled library with the fire going, and to sit down with him and say, now listen, you've had money like people can only dream of having money. You are around people who have money like nobody can even think about having that kind of money. Talk to me about money. You're an expert on it, experientially. You know what it can do. You know what it can't do. You see it from all angles. You've experienced it. So tell me a little bit about that. What, what have you learned that I will never learn because the odds are I'm never going to own so much gold that I throw all of the silver out in my house because I consider it below my use? Uh, if for no other reason that I don't own any silver even, I'd have to get rid of the stainless steel. So to sit down and say, talk with me about money. I want to learn about money from an expert. And then for a guy like this to open up his mouth, and as he has, as we saw last week, he continues it here in verse 13 this evening. He said, there is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun. All right, he's got my attention. Context is money. There's a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. And he's talking about the fact that riches can make a miser of a person, a hoarder of a person. Have you ever known uh, money to change a person? You ever had a relationship like that in your life? Where they got a hold of money and you meet them six months later or three years later and you say, I don't recognize this person. Money has completely changed them. And maybe it's not just somebody that we know or if we don't know, but that can have happened in our own life. Money is a powerful, powerful influence. And as the old saying goes, it is a wonderful servant, but it is a terrible, terrible master. We tend to think, and the deception that he's dealing with here is that if only I had a little more money, I would become a more generous person. It is my lack of money that keeps me from being a generous person. And he, said, and he in essence says, no, that isn't the problem. He says, I've seen this evil under the sun. It is rampant. It is widespread that so often the more money that a person has, the more stingy and miserly they become with their money. It is a deception, he's telling us, a lie, he's telling us, that we tell ourselves that I will one day become a generous person once I get enough money. Or the thing that keeps me from becoming a generous person is that I don't have enough money. There's kind of an old saying you do, if you ever are involved in premarital counseling with someone who's going to get married. And the 
uh, woman who is, the, you know, with her fiancé in the room, and it works the other way around, too. So often they overlook these glaring kind of flaws that are going on in a person's life, and they think to themselves, I'll change him. <laughs> I got a chuckle. Somebody laughed over here. That struck a chord. Now, and then it is my duty to then inform people that what that person is single, they will be even more of married. They will be that in spades married. So we are what we are, and what we are will represent itself whether we have money or we don't have money, whether we have power or we don't have power. I can be confident of the fact that if I became wealthy, I would also be a generous person if I am a generous person without wealth. And that may take place in the, in the form of a smaller amount of money to be able to give to a situation, or if there's no money at all, then in terms of time or uh, making myself available to serve somebody. But this is the deception that he uh, deals with here. And the terrible thing that he saw repeatedly, apparently here, and I believe it, and that is that we can, uh, that money can make a hoarding miser of people. He calls it, uh, he, when he, that word that he uses for evil here is, literally means a sickness. In other words, wealth can trigger a psychological illness in some people. Again, as I mentioned, they can become a completely different person as a result of coming into money. And it can really be harmful. Not in everyone. Some people say, well, I'd like to at least try and see what happens. You know. But it really can be harmful to a certain kind of person, harmful spiritually, harmful mentally, harmful emotionally, harmful physically. I have a dear loved one in my family that spent a number of years in the drug culture and all of those kind of things. And he said to me one time, he said, the only reason I'm alive, because he worked entry-level jobs, because that's just what he he enjoyed the job that he had, but it allowed for the drug life to occur too. And he said, the only reason I'm alive is I couldn't afford more drugs. And, and so sometimes the riches, when a person isn't ready for them or a person isn't made for them, we automatically think, no, I'm made for more than I have. We don't know that. And, and so that's why the Bible talks about, hey, give me not so much, so little that I have tempted to steal, but not so much that I walk away from you, God. That's the balance. God knows what that balance is in our life. And so um, riches really can be harmful if they're not properly handled. And apparently Solomon had seen a fair amount of that. It's interesting, the classic example of uh, all of this is uh, John D. Rockefeller, who was uh, at the time in American history, and when he was alive, he, he, he was, his life was almost ruined by his wealth. At the age of 53, he was the world's only billionaire. Now, oh, billionaire, we just sniff at it. A billionaire. Whew. Who are you? It's interesting, maybe you read an article recently that Bill Gates, with his wealth, could buy every single home in Boston and still have a billion dollars. 
amazing amount of wealth. But way back when a billion dollars really meant something, <laughs> Rockefeller was the only billionaire in the whole wide world, and he was earning about a million dollars a week. But he was a sick man, and his diet consisted of crackers and milk for the sole reason is that his money kept him awake with worry. And then there came a point in his life where he began to give his money away, and it was fascinating. His health changed radically, and he lived to celebrate his 98th birthday. And so money, we think it's the answer to everything. It can be just the beginning of a problem in a person's life. And so how do we know whether money is a a servant to us or whether it's a master in our lives, we know that on the basis of whether we are able to give it away or not. And if I cannot give it away, then it's a master. If I am able to give it away, then it is a servant. That's why Jesus taught, and he said, given it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be uh, put into your bosom for with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And that's why so many people, they spend their whole life endeavoring to become fabulously wealthy. They become wealthy, and then there's this lag of years between the time they uh, gain their wealth and then they thought this would bring all of the satisfaction. They then enjoy all of the life that the money now allows them to enjoy, but then there comes that point where they realize this isn't it either. And that's when they start to give their money away because the same light that went on for Solomon goes on for them. Verse 14. Well, let's just close tonight. We covered one verse. Okay. He said, but those, rich, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. And so he's continuing to educate us on money our rich uncle here who's talking to us, and he tells us that riches often perish through misfortune. And so Solomon emphasized this by kind of referring to a person who had carefully uh, treasured and managed his money. He's hoarded his money and uh, his wealth, and then he loses it all through some kind of a misfortune. It could be a bad business deal, the stock market collapses, the world economy collapses, or a drought occurs, or a natural disaster, an earthquake, a tornado, a lawsuit today, and then the money is gone uh, through misfortune, leaves him with nothing to leave his son as an inheritance. And so, um, in contrasting those with riches and those without riches, his conclusion is it's better to have never had wealth than to once have had it and lost it, because the loss of wealth brings this disappointment and sorrow into a person's life that they wouldn't otherwise have experienced. Not true. It is true, but it's not the whole truth. And there are large numbers of people who are Christians who have lost large sums of money in the course of their life, and it was the greatest thing that ever happened to them in coming to know the Lord or drawing them closer to the Lord in a way that they never otherwise would have known. So it is generally true 
but it is not always true, and it is probably almost certainly true if we're just talking about under the sun, not putting God and His work uh, into the factor of things related to wealth. Verse 15, as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return. What did you come, did anybody come into the world with like a matchbox car in your hand? Or like a little toy spatula or anything? No, we came into the world how? Naked. Naked. We came in with nothing into the world. And as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he, shall, and he shall take nothing from his labor which he may carry away in his hand. We're not going to take anything, not a matchbox car, not a thimble, not anything with us out of this life, into the life to come. And we'll go out as, as naked as when we came in. And he said in verse 16, and this also is a severe evil, just exactly as he came, so shall he go, empty-handed. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? And so he speaks and says, uh, in essence, even if you don't lose your money to a disaster in this life, one day everyone with riches will be separated from their money. 100% thoroughly, more effectively than an earthquake or a lawsuit or a stock market collapse, uh, everyone is going to be separated once at uh, some point in time in our future from all of our riches. In other words, money and riches are not a permanent possession for anyone. That's an illusion. Nobody has them uh, permanently. Remember Solomon's looking at life under the sun. And the point that he's making here on all of this is, again, the, the idea, he's talking about death, is the fact that the person who is rich, the complications of the rich, um, the person who is rich, the fact that they are going to leave such wealth behind um, makes death even harder for them. And death can be hard for a person, but it's even harder for the rich person because they have to live with the fact that they're going to leave so much behind them in this world. And again, the whole solution to that is since we can't take anything with us, the old saying is, send it ahead. How do we send it ahead as Christians? By investing in kingdom work. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures in heaven or on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 17, he says, all of his days he also eats in darkness. And he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. And so here is the fact that money can't buy happiness. In fact, money can be the cause of unhappiness. So here's the emotional condition that can befall a person who was formerly rich, lost everything in life and and in the course of their life, and again, Solomon concludes that it would have been better if they had never been rich at all than to have been rich and lost it all. And so, 
again, under the sun, that's probably a very hard thing for a person to live with. I was once a millionaire. I was once a multimillionaire. All of that is gone. And it can, without God, result in a life of sorrow and sickness and anger as he brings out in the passage a terrible stew. That's a, that's a three-part stew you don't want to be in. And, and a lot of people find themselves in that. But again, looking at it in the context of God, we can lose anything in life and then come back and with the Lord realize, I love the Lord. I am the called according to his purposes. He will work this, even this together for good in my life in conforming me into uh, the image of Christ. In verse 18, he goes on and says, here's what I've seen. Okay, tell me, this is what we're here for. We want to know, what have you seen, Solomon? You've seen, you've been places I've never been. Tell me about it. He said, it's good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for this is his heritage. And so here he's speaking about the fact that only God can give us the ability to enjoy our blessings. I believe that. When I sit down in the morning and I have my banana and my little bowl of oatmeal preceded by my cup of tea, and I know God, and I love God, and He's with me, and He saved me. I'm richer than the richest person in the whole world that doesn't know the Lord. And in fact, as God is my witness, if you came to me and you said, I will offer you the whole world in exchange for the simple life that you live, but you can't have a relationship with God, I'd turn you down in a heartbeat. It'd have no appeal to me at all. I can't live five minutes without the Lord, so how could I even enjoy? And that's the idea. There's a, you can have a... You, you, a person who knows the Lord gets more enjoyment out of the simplest things in life than very often that the richest people get out of their fabulous wealth lived apart from God. And I'll tell you, I believe it. I've only lived one side of that equation, but I absolutely uh, believe it. So, it's kind of funny. Everywhere you go here, Solomon here in verse 18, it's all the way through. He's trying, he's trying, I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and I'm going to blow that house down. He is determined. I'm not going to talk about God. I'm not going to talk about God. I'm not going to bring God into this. This is life under the sun in the context of the creation and not the creator. I'm not going to talk about God. And then, by the way, God. He just keeps talking about God all the way through again because you're going to keep stumbling over God in this life. And there's no way around it. And so he tells us, in essence, in verse 18, that uh, all of these things are blessings in life and take time to enjoy your blessings. So as opposed to the miser there in verse uh, 13 who can't bring himself to spend any of his wealth, uh, that this Solomon says, listen, if you've got wealth, you've got some prosperity, you've got the health to enjoy it and all of that, then go ahead and use it. Enjoy it. God gives you the ability to do that. And then no matter what happens, I mean, if, the, if you lose everything you've got, nobody can take the memories away from you if you used your wealth to enjoy yourself. And 
and uh, in, enjoy some of uh, the pleasures of, uh, of life. And so, this is uh, the, the point that he's making there. In verse 19, as for every man who, to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is a gift from God. So, again, abundance and blessing are useless without the power uh, to enjoy them and uh, uh, only God, he's saying, can keep a person from being possessed by their possessions, being willing to spend their money instead of being uh, ruled and dominated by their money. It's a gift to spend it, and, and so it's, it's okay to do it. And sometimes you have to give people, Solomon apparently here, he understands it being around rich people, and rich people are as diverse as, as diverse as poor people, but there's a certain kind of person that Solomon says, you got to just come to them and tell them, go ahead and spend a little bit of it. You might as well enjoy yourself. You're going to leave it all, and, and so enjoy some of it along the way. Verse 20, for he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God uh, keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. And so, uh, he talks about not dwelling or not remembering. In other words, spending our resources on enjoying life, the blessings of life, and there are so many blessings uh, in life that that protects us from one day looking back on our lives and regretting that we didn't take more time to enjoy ourselves. And again, he's talking about the context of the rich, that this is a great problem with the rich, not taking enough, where we see people using their money crazy, extreme, you know, that's the kind of person that gets in front of, put in front of us in terms of the reality shows, which I hope you're not watching, but these kind of people are put in front of us, or extravagant, where people are just flowing, you know, spending the money as quickly as they make it by the gazillions, but there's a whole world of rich people who don't do that, and, uh, and they have to be told, hey, it's okay to spend it and enjoy life a little bit, and if you enjoy life a little bit, you won't be thinking about death so much and your money and what's going to happen to it because you'll too, be too busy enjoying life, and it's uh, very, very good counsel. Chapter 6, uh, verse 1, there's an evil which I've seen under the sun, and it's common among man. So, boy, he's seen a lot of this. What's he talking about? A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. And what he's saying here in these two verses, he's bringing out the fact that money cannot provide, can never provide a sense of security. Why? For the simple reason that money is not secure in this world. It can be lost as quickly as it's gained. This is the great, again, deception. He, sees, he says, it's common among men. I see it all over the place. People are trying to establish security in life through money, but there's no security because money is not 
secure itself. And he uses the illustration of a person here who's very disciplined with their wealth, accumulates their wealth, and uh, lives a, a proper, manages their money in a proper way, and yet he loses all of it when the country is invaded and conquered by an enemy. And so Solomon's saying to us again, enjoy the blessings of God now and thank Him for all of them. Don't start living someday. Uh, live now and enjoy that money because it can be gone in an instant. That's his counsel, kind of from, you know, again, just looking at things or trying to at least depart from God. Verse 3, if a man begets a hundred children, wow, there's a Father's Day for you, huh? I don't know whether it would be good or bad. <laughs> if a man begets a hundred children, I'm lost for a moment because my mind went from the father to the mother, and I and it just sent me sent me off. Just that poor, poor lady. But he does say if. So if a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, now that was that's an Old Testament way of saying this guy is living the life because they measured wealth in terms of long life and children. So if a man begets a hundred children and he lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness. In other words, he remains covetous. He's always wanting more. He's not satisfied with the blessings, the good blessings that he has. Or, indeed, he has no burial. He dies out on the battlefield, or he, he dies to have a funeral, and nobody comes to the funeral. Uh, I say, Solomon says, that a stillborn child is better than he, a child that is born lifeless into the world. For that child, uh, it comes in vanity, and, and it departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this is more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice but has not seen goodness, uh, do not all go to one place. And so he's making the point that a long, prosperous life is absolutely futile if it isn't coupled with contentment and the opportunity uh, to enjoy it. Somebody's life is just dominated by covetousness and they live a life where nobody comes to their funeral, et cetera, et cetera. Solomon concludes that it would be better never to have been born than to have lived life in this world only to experience the pain, the difficulty of it, the mess of this godless rat race and all of it, and, and then closed out uh, without being prepared uh, for death. In verse 7, he says, all the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. So he works hard to eat, and yet there's no soul satisfaction in just eating. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? 
Better is, is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. And so this is his recommendation to be content, that it's better to be a poor man who knows how to enjoy the little that he has than to be and, and one who lives life in the real world, in the here and now, than to be a rich man who cannot enjoy uh, the much that he has because his focus is always on what he doesn't have, and so he spends his whole life focused on what he doesn't have, detached from his reality, the blessings of his reality, and he ends up missing uh, all of, uh, of life uh, as a result. And uh, so he says in verse 12, for who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow. Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? And so the idea here is, is that uh, the uh, man's life is vain under the sun because all he has are questions in life without answers because all of the most answers to the most important questions in life come from God, and they can never come uh, from wealth. And so to ignore God is to remain ignorant about the most important questions that uh, are uh, occurring uh, in, um, in life. Well, let me, verse 10 here, he says, for whatever one has, he has, uh, whatever one is, he has been he has been named already, for it is known that he is man, or Adam, Adam. He's come from Adam, and he cannot contend with him who is mightier than he. So here is the rich man who, though he is rich, he looks and he still can't make sense of why are human beings the way that they are in their treatment with one another. Again, that, the answer to that question only comes from Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. So again, he's ignorant of uh, of how to answer the questions of life around him and how rich is a man truly who is able to answer those questions. Since there are many things that increase vanity, how much is man the better? And again, verse 12, for who knows what is good for man in life all the days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow, who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? And so, uh, all, all, again, all of the most important questions in life cannot be discovered independent of God. So I may be fabulously wealthy, but I live in an astonishing ignorance and in an astonishing intellectual, spiritual, emotional, uh, mental darkness. And and Solomon knew it, and so this was his kind of talking about, I've been around rich people, I am a rich person, and this is, uh, you know, the real dope about, um, about riches that most people aren't going to tell you, but I'm going to tell you. Now, coming into chapter 7, uh, things kind of change, and Solomon uh, from here all the way through to about midway or very th near the very end of chapter 12, Solomon kind of begins to give us his advice for how to live life under the sun, exhortations for in the light of his life search to try and find purpose and meaning independent of God. This is what I've learned. And so he's going to kind of give us a, a collection of quotes. I remember right when I was a boy, I had a 
a, a book that was given to me on uh, the quotes of Mark Twain and all of these clever things that he had said, his ideas about life, his philosophy on life. And certainly, he didn't really put it that way, but he was basically communicating those things. And that's what Solomon is going to do here all the way through to uh, the end of the book. And so, here he is, he's partied, and he has studied, and he has built, and he has bought, and he has pleasured himself to the nth degree. He's religioned himself like crazy, still finds himself empty and frustrated with life under the sun. And so, he now does, and it's so fascinating to watch him in this journey, because he now does what most thinking people do, and that is he decides, well, if I'm not going to be able to take God into account here, then what I'm going to have to do to be able to navigate life here is to develop my own philosophy of life. And so, he's determined to make sense of life independent of God, independent of God's commandments and God's wisdom and perspective. And if a person's going to live independent of God's wisdom and His commandments, then that person must come up with wisdom and guidelines uh, of their own for navigating life in what is otherwise a meaningless world. And so, through this section all the way uh, through the latter part of chapter 12, he's going to tell us a little bit about what he's come to believe based upon his experiences in life and his observations in life. So, it's going to be kind of like where he says, you know, son, come on over here and sit by the campfire, and much as he's done related to riches, and let me tell you a few things about life that I've learned. Now, everybody has that inside of them. You have that inside of them. If somebody were come up to you and say, hey, tell me what you've learned in life. Tell me how you see this. Or, hey, would you speak into my life? Uh, for most of us, immediately, several things would come to our mind and say, well, if I haven't learned anything else in life, you know, even independent of God, this is what I would tell you to look out for, to be aware of, to um, keep your eye open to these kind of opportunities, etc., etc., etc. So often I hear you'll read. I think Billy Graham was interviewed uh, even late in his life, and this, of course, is not under the sun, but they asked Billy Graham uh, what regrets he might have in life. What would he do different uh, if he had an opportunity to do it again? And one of his answers, and it's fascinating, he said, I'd take more chances. I'd take more chances. Well, this is an example of a life experience where someone is wanting to pass that on to somebody else because they think maybe it would be valuable. And that's what, exactly what Solomon is going to do here. And, but the problem is, is because his life, all of these things that he comes up with are as a result of a life experience that he's had out of a determination not to include God. Some of what he says is true. Some of what he says uh, isn't true. It's not consistent with Scripture. So, in developing this, his own philosophy on life, Solomon, certainly not alone in this, everyone who decides to live under the sun has to do that. And so there's countless people who don't adhere to any particular belief system. They don't believe in God, anything like that. And so they're forced then to devise their own uh, philosophy on life from bits and pieces of things that they've heard through the years or experiences that they've had in life. And so stuff they've picked up from all over the place. One of the interesting things about a person's 
um, self-developed philosophy on life is how tenaciously they will defend it and how hard it is to move them from that. There's something powerful about truth that we have discovered personally by experience or that we've come up on our, with on our own in our life experience. And even if that so-called truth is exposed as a lie, how hard it is to get us to recognize that and move us from it. And I think that's one of the great works that the Holy Spirit has to do in a person's life to get them to abandon all of that, to then put their faith in Christ and come under God's wisdom. But we hold tenaciously to what we've come up with uh, on, our, uh, on our own, uh, whether it's true or not. I remember many years ago now when my wife Karen and I we were both new Christians, and we were at a, a large family gathering made up mostly of her side of the family, and uh, Karen's great-grandmother was present, and the subject of heaven and hell came up. And I don't remember bringing it up, but uh, I could have, but I don't think that I did. And so people were just kind of putting in their two cents on, uh, on the uh, subject of heaven and hell. And, and Karen's great-grandmother, she declared that she didn't believe in heaven, didn't believe in hell, that you make your own heaven and hell right here on earth. And uh, she spoke it in a way that was like, okay, um, this is the law of the Medes and the Persians. This can't be added to and it can't be taken away. The authoritative voice on heaven and hell uh, on planet earth has just spoken. The subject is closed. No more discussion needed. Well, we were new Christians, and uh, we knew that this didn't really represent the fact about heaven and hell. And I remember Karen just simply stating that that wasn't the fact about heaven and hell and that there really was a real heaven and a real hell. And her great-grandmother said, don't you preach to me. It was like... And it was like another person came out. Really powerful. Maybe a long time before not only would she speak to us, but before she would even acknowledge our existence. But... It proves the point. That was a so-called truth that she had come up with on her own. And when confronted with a different idea, how tenaciously she held on to that and how immovable she was from that, that position. Now, all of these personal philosophies that people uh, come to form in life independent of God. Each of them are somewhat different, but typically they have a couple of things in common. And the first thing is, is that everything in life is relative. And the second is that people are the standard for righteousness rather than God's Word or God Himself. So the idea is that if I live just a little bit better than my neighbor and everybody else in life, if I'm, in the, if I'm a C plus and above morally and in terms of 
how I conduct myself in the world, that if there is an afterlife, that I'll be okay because God's going to grade on a curve and I'll get into heaven and I won't go to the other place uh, even though I don't believe in the other place. But you can't be too sure. People are like Solomon. I mean, they're trying to get rid of God, but they got to hedge their bets too a little bit on things. So there's this idea of a morality that I need to live a little bit better than other people. The problem with that is the Bible teaches that the righteousness that's required for heaven is perfect righteousness. Not being better than me or better than you or your neighbor or Aunt B or Opie or Goober or any of our other television friends. Uh, the standard that's required is perfection. I like how Paul puts it when he wrote to the Romans over the fact that the only person, the only group of people in the world who are still endeavoring to somehow devise a personal philosophy of life that will mean that they will get into heaven after this life are people who are ignorant of the standard that's required to get into heaven, the standard being righteousness. He wrote in Romans chapter 10, for they, speaking of that kind of person, being ignorant of God's righteousness, that is the righteousness that's required to be, get into heaven, perfection, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone. Once a person understands righteousness, perfection is the, righteous, the standard that's required. Everyone gives off trying to then earn their way into heaven. And so we gather around the campfire here a little bit with Grandpa Solomon, and let's see as he tries to tell us a little bit about his uh, philosophy and life. And we'll notice immediately that the format is very, very much like the book of Proverbs. Chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment or costly perfume, is how we would put it today. And the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. Huh? But anyway, that's what he says. So he talks about the value here of a good name. And of course, in Hebrew culture, name isn't just a name that they attach to you for means of identification uh, through life. So when they take the roll call in the third grade, we know that you are in the room. In Hebrew culture, your name represented your character. It represented your reputation. So he's saying that good character, a good reputation, has a more beautiful fragrance than the most costly perfume. And that's the truth. Because you ever walk into a room where somebody's wearing a costly perfume? I do. I notice it every time because I get like somebody has stabbed me with an ice pick through my heart. I don't know what it is that the reaction to those scents are, but I have a physical reaction to it. I remember one time before we moved here to Modesto, I decided to go to several other churches in town just to see what was going on kingdom-wise and all. And I went to Calvary Temple, and they weren't in their new sanctuary yet. It was in the old sanctuary. And, and of course, the place is full and all of these kind of things. And I found a seat next to the aisle, which was great. It was just a coach seat, but it was on the aisle. So I went there and I sat down. And the woman that was sitting in the seat next to me, 
she had emptied the bottle of whatever she was wearing on her. And I have this internal code about interrupting a speaker or a service and walking out on things. I wouldn't do it in a college class. I'm certainly not going to do it in a church service. So I'm trying to breathe through anything I can discreetly to, and I got this pain that's going through my heart and the whole deal. The service ended, and I could finally stop holding my breath. I was blue, 45 minutes. I had been to the bottom of the Antarctic Ocean and got out of there. Well, anyway, enough about my problems. The crazy things that come to your mind, right, when you're teaching a Bible study? So, but good character, more beautiful and uh, valuable than a beautiful fragrance of the most costly perfume because you, you leave somebody's presence and you remember their perfume and you remember it for a while, the fragrance. Yes, it was beautiful. But when you leave someone's presence and their character and their reputation is beautiful, that has a far longer-lasting impact. It rests upon our life for a longer uh, period of time. When he talks here about under the sun, and it's true, you know, under the sun, the two most significant days in a person's life are the day we're born and the day we die. And so the idea here isn't that, you know, dying is better than being born, but it's in the context of living a godly life or living a, a life of, of good character that the one who lives that kind of life in such a way that they do have a good reputation, then the day of their death will be more remembered than the day of their birth and uh, because of the lasting impact of their character and of their reputation. Everybody's born into the world. That's no big deal. But not everyone is mourned when they die. And that's the observation that Solomon makes with the idea that we would give greater attention to our inward character than the perfume or the colognes uh, that we're buying. But I don't buy colognes either. You know why? Because when I smell cologne, it's like an ice pick is being stuck right into… Did I, did I already say this to you? I'm just kidding. Well, let's stop there tonight. I wanted to at least prime the pump for where we're going in terms of the format of all of this in chapter 7, and we'll pick it up, Lord willing, next week as he, uh, Grandpa Solomon, shares with us his philosophy on life, and uh, we'll decide whether uh, it's true or whether it's false, you know, kind of proverb by proverb. And, uh, but the insights are very interesting to look at. And, uh, and educational. I'd like the worship team to come forward right now and would love to close this uh, day today and our service tonight by worshiping the Lord a little bit more, giving Him the praise and the worship that He is uh, so richly due. So let's worship the Lord and then I'll close our service out in prayer.